Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This was the exact moment I knew I would always be obsessed with wet, hot American summer. You guys, I'm really going to miss this place. Me too. Hey, let's all promise that in 10 years from today, we'll meet again and we'll see what kind of people we've blossomed into. Yeah! What time you want to meet? You mean 10 years from now? Yeah. Let's meet in the morning so we can make a day of it. Okay, so what is it? Is it like 9 or 9.30? Well, let's say 9. That way we can be here by 9.30. Well, no, why don't we say 9.30 and then make it your beeswax to be here at 9.30? I mean, we're all going to be in our late 20s by then. I just don't see any reason why we can't be places on time. Okay, then. Settled. 9.30 it is. All agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. agreed. Great, because I have something at 11. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and I can't quite believe that it has now been 20 years since my guest today, David Wayne, directed what has slowly become a full-on comedy classic. When Wet Hot American Summer first hit a very small handful of theaters in July of 2001, The two biggest stars in the movie were Janine Garofalo and David Hyde Pierce. Back then, no one had ever heard of Bradley Cooper or Elizabeth Banks. Amy Poehler wasn't on SNL yet, and Paul Rudd was years away from becoming part of the Marvel Universe. The movie bombed big time at the box office and may have been forgotten to history forever. Dedicated comedy nerds hadn't passed around the DVD and shown up to midnight screenings in the years that followed. So, to honor this momentous anniversary of one of my all-time favorite movies, I was so excited to sit down with David Wayne and go deep on how the project came together, the wild, rain-soaked shoot at a real summer camp in Pennsylvania, and how his career ultimately recovered from what was widely seen as a complete disaster. Let's get into it. Here's me with David Wayne. I'm very excited to have you on the show this week because... As we're as we speak, it's just about the the twenty year anniversary of Wet Hot American Summer, which I can't quite believe. I don't know if you can. I absolutely can't believe it because <laughs> I'm only I'm about to turn thirty soon. Yeah, so it's like that's it's amazing. Yeah, really a weird math for that. <laughs> so it's I, I will admit to you that it's probably the the movie that I've watched more times than almost any other movie over these last 20 years, um, including last night when I watched it again, just so it was super fresh in my memory. Was it funny still? It's still so funny. I still <laughs> laugh out loud uh, <laughs> I'm throughout I, in multiple places. I will say um, I, I see it once every several years, I suppose, for some reason. And uh, I just showed my kids for the first time. They're 10 and 13. And I thought it was really funny, too. I was... <laughs> what did they think? They loved it. They they really laughed. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, it was it's amazing that it still holds up. 
It's funny. It's like it's a movie that feels like it should be appropriate for ten and thirteen year olds in some ways, but then if you watch it, it's definitely not. It's definitely not. But I have, <laughs> you know, they're my kids, and I I waited long enough. Yeah, you couldn't wait any longer. Um, so I would love to just kind of start at the beginning, um, and by setting the stage for where you were in your career at this time. I know it had been, I think, almost like six years between the state ending on MTV and the movie coming out. So, and you had been working, I think, at at Mad TV some during that time. Um, so, kind of where where were you in your in your career I mean, when this movie came along? Yeah, uh, in the starting in college and into the mid '90s, we were all the eleven of us in the state, very committed to the state, and which was our comedy troupe, and very um, hoping that that would be all we would do for the rest of our lives. <laughs> yeah. um, and that really crashed and burned and fell apart in the mid nineties, uh, around 97 in a million different ways, which is another podcast. And then, uh, but so Michael Showalter and I sort of in the ashes of that, were trying to figure out what, what we could do, uh, with our careers. And, and we started writing stuff together and we had this dream of making a look, the great high school romantic comedy. And we wrote this script um, or started writing this script and we did research and we traveled to my old high school in Cleveland and it just seemed like it was going to be really hard and take a lot of work. And so we decided, let's just shoot something right now. And so that spring of 97, we said, let's do it. Let's do a camp movie. It'll be outside. It'll be during the day. We can just grab our friends and do it right now. And it ended up being a three-year journey of actually turning it into a real screenplay and and looking for the money. And then we finally got to shoot it um, in in the spring of 2000. So you you thought you were going to be able to shoot it right away. And then what what, what were the roadblocks of that? Just the, the money or the, the cast? Well, as or? we started putting, we thought we were going to, we were inspired by our friend Sam Cedar, who had done a movie just from an outline, um, improvising with his friends around the village. And we thought that would be the way to do this. But as we started writing, it just sort of seemed more like a script of a real movie as we as we kept putting it together. And so we started, we found a producer, Howard Bernstein, and together the three of us went down all these rabbit holes. It was an incredible moment in, you know, it was the time when independent films were being financed and sold at Sundance all the time. And there were all these shady characters that would sit you down at some restaurant in Manhattan and look you in the eye and say, this is a go. I'm giving you $3 million <laughs> to write this yeah. movie. I'm about to write the check and then literally disappear the next moment, <laughs> you know? And so that happened over and over and over again. We went down so many uh, roads. Yeah, um, that must've been frustrating. Super frustrating. And then finally it came together, uh, cobbled together a set of investors, um, put together $1.8 million and, uh, and we finally got to shoot it in the spring of 2000. So I think it's easy to forget at this point, um, 20 years later, that most of the that almost no one in the cast was famous when the movie came out um, because so many of them are now. Well, the big star at the time of the movie was Janine Garofalo. Um, she was she was the, the the leading name, and then Molly Shannon and David Hyde Pierce had some name value, and that was it. Yeah, and Paul Rudd much. had done a few things, but wasn't quite the star he, he had is, done. Uh, 200 cigarettes and object of my affection and, <laughs> yeah. and cider house rules, I think at the time. Mm -hmm. um, um, so he was getting going. So what was the, what was the casting process like for you? Cause again, it's, it's, there's a lot of people from the state in it, but then there's a lot of people who you hadn't worked with before. Yeah. Well, we had written this thing with a huge number of roles and we knew that 
part of the point of doing it was to do something we could do with all our friends. So we certainly passed out a lot of roles to people in the state and other friends of ours. Um, and then we had an audition process. We found a, a then young casting director, Susie Ferris, and um, people like Bradley Cooper and Elizabeth Banks and Christopher Maloney walked in and auditioned um, off the street. And obviously we were looking at all age ranges to play these 16 year old kids. And for a long time, we thought Elizabeth Banks was going to play Katie. Uh, but then we lost, I think who was going to play Elizabeth Banks role. And then we switched her over. And then I know that Marguerite Moreau only auditioned at the very last second when we were already up there shooting and Mike Showalter or right about to shoot. And Michael Showalter, I think went back drove three hours back to the city to meet her one time she came up and did it and um so i mean yeah it was just a combination i guess like most movies of people we knew and then people we auditioned and then other people like david hyde pierce and molly shannon where we just offered them the role um and uh you know those those the people that we didn't know at the time i remember david hyde pierce said to me on the phone he called me up he said if janine garofalo is actually going to be in it and not, which, which was a legitimate question for any indie film when you say someone's in it, you know, said so if she's, if she's actually going to show up and if, um, you're playing it straight, then I'm in. And I said yes to both. <laughs> what do you think he meant by, uh, that you're actually, that you're playing it straight? Just that we're going to, that we're going to say these real, these goofy lines with conviction and not be like, you know, not be goofy on goofy, you know? I feel like that's really the the key to the movie is the tone, um, which you just maintain this is perfect, perfectly absurd tone throughout the entire film. So and and yeah, it is it is you know really everyone taking it seriously is I think part of that. How did you kind of get all of the actors who are coming from these different worlds? You know, Bradley Cooper coming from theater school, and then you guys coming from the state, and you know, and on the same page in terms of what that tone would be. I mean, a lot of it, I could say more in retrospect how we did it, because at the time, it was my first time really shooting anything with a crew. And <laughs> um, But our calling card was the state. And that was that was the only thing we had to show people and say, this is the kind of... And then really the, the guiding light for us in making it was we were really... This movie was sourced in our own experiences at summer camp. And even though it's... But also obviously funny and absurd in the ways it was... I think then as now, the only barometer was, does it work for us? Does it, does it feel true and funny to us as we watch it on set, on in rehearsal, in the edit, whenever? And that's all you, because comedy is so ephemeral and hard to define. And once you start really getting too bogged down in the rules of it, then you're not making something that makes any sense. And so I think uh, we just have to keep, I think my goal always has been to, get out of the way of listening to my own inner instincts, which I think where I've gotten into trouble is when I know something in my heart, but I don't say it out loud or I can't access it. Um, so that's, that's all we were. And, and I think one, one of the things that made that perfect storm of wet, hot American summer happen in a special way was because we had essentially no studio, no, nobody watching us make this movie we really felt like kids let out to do whatever we wanted. And all the crew and all the cast, we were all very young, largely inexperienced people being set, you know, all living at this summer camp. And we were just like, let's do whatever the fuck we want. It was great, you know, but, (laughs) 
But we, and at the same time though, we were working from a script that had been honed over three long years where we really kept rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And we did so many table reads and, but sometimes to try to raise money and other times just to get work on the script. So, and also Michael Schalter and I had otherwise very little work during that time. And so we had a lot of time to, I've never worked three years on a script, you know, and so it's like the band the, that spends, you know, their whole life on the first album and then. Right, exactly. <laughs> pretty much. And so by the time we got to set, it was really tight. Like every joke had been through the, the ringer. And then so, yeah, we were really confident in it, um, even though, it, you know, what I like about Wet Hot American Summer is that it feels very slapdash and and almost improvised. And yet it's so clear to me, it's so not, you know, it, it's, it's really thought through moment by moment. And so to kind of bridge those two feelings is fun for me. Before we move on from the the casting part of it, uh, I know there, there's the, this long list of people who are thanked at the end of the movie. Um, and some of those people were actual who auditioned or were maybe going to be in the in the movie or they were actually um if you're talking about like billy crudup and millie yeah, Mary Louise Parker. Lee schreiber and uh stephen colbert i think is in there yeah <laughs> they, they those were some of those people were um had participated in early readings to raise money and had been either attached or said they would yeah sure if I, you know let me know kind of thing and just had lent their talent and or their name to the development process and so that's what, basically what it was and then uh yeah, that's what it was. It wasn't that they were cast and then uncast. Were there other people who auditioned who then later become became very famous who didn't make it in the movie for various reasons? What's her name? From Mulholland Drive auditioned. Naomi Watts? Um, I have that video somewhere. <laughs> what part was that for? For the lead for Katie. And there were a few others. I know um, Adina Menzel auditioned. And uh, yeah, um, but and I'm sure probably other ones that I don't even remember. Um, yeah. Because you didn't, you weren't re registering at the time that they. Yeah, were. I mean, it was a, it was a who's who of young actors in New York at the time, you know. Um, so it was pretty cool. The uh, the sequence, just even just rewatching it last night, that I, and and remembering back to when I first saw it, that I kind of realized that something different was happening in this movie, and that it, I was really connecting with it, is the the trip into town. Um, where, you know, all kinds of crazy things happen. Um, and it just, it seems like it ups the absurd ante in that scene. Can you talk a little bit about where that came from and, and why you, uh, why you wanted to include that whole sequence? Well, a lot of the, um, writing process that Michael Schalter and I had at the time was we would literally just sit next to each other at the typewriter and one of, or the computer, and one of us would just type and the other one would sit there and, and we would, yeah, I know this is fascinating. No, nobody's ever done it like that. But it just sometimes just we would just start typing things just like as a joke, you know, kind of. And then that I think I, I don't remember exactly what that was. But yeah, I, I know that it was partly sourced in the idea that that is it did always feel like because when you're at camp, the palette of inputs you have is so small you know, we didn't have cell phones or anything. And so when you have a day off as a counselor and you get to go into the real world and like, you know, the idea of getting just the idea of getting a slice of pizza is like so exciting <laughs> or going into an air conditioned store. It was just like, oh my God. So that was the, the, you know, taking that to an absurd exaggeration. But I also remember, so we wrote that piece of the script and it's a half a page in the script, but it's like 20 locations or, you know, 10 locations. And in a, no budget movie that was a really tall order and 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 remember we're shooting on film on 16 millimeter film with one camera 
it's not like as easy as like running around with a little can, you know, yeah, and so an iPhone. Um, and so as the movie got shot and it was pouring rain every day, we kept losing time and running out of film and stuff. And our producer at various points was like, we're not going to do this trip to town thing. It's just <laughs> absurd. And it's, it's not that funny and you just don't need it, you know, and it certainly doesn't add anything to the story. <laughs> and, <laughs> kind of pauses um, the story for a few minutes. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I, um, you know, we kept fighting for it. And then, cause it was also the only set we built in the whole movie was that drug den. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and we, uh, basically he said, okay, you've got like a quarter of a day and this van and you can go in with these actors and the cameraman and you and go. And that's what we did. And and, and we just like ran around Waterville. <laughs> as fast as possible. It wasn't actually what it was in Pennsylvania, Honesdale, Pennsylvania. And um, and we did it. And that's, that's what happened. <laughs> the other scene that I love and always think about is the uh, Paul Rudd cleaning up scene, which was that something that was sort of purely scripted and, and that was how you imagined it? Or did he bring something to that that well, I mean, you didn't? Yeah. <laughs> It's it is it is how it's scripted, but it's also it, it the reason why it rose above and became one of the most memorable scenes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, of my career is um, is Paul. You know, he 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 took it and ran with it. And it, it's funny you mention it because I was just thinking like if I had to pick probably the two scenes in my entire thirty five years of doing this that people really remember, it's that and the scene in Wanderlust when Paul is talking to himself in the mirror. Yes. And both of them, both of those scenes were very similar in their conception, which is they were little connector moments that weren't even easily could have been cut for time on a shoot day. And both almost were. And they both were just like, OK, let's do this thing. And then Paul Rudd comes and turns it into something <laughs> miraculous, you know. And I remember, as with almost every scene in Wet Hot American Summer, we did that two takes. And uh, I remember very clearly the day watching him do that and everyone standing in that dining hall at Camp Tawanda being like, oh my God, this is so <laughs> funny. Andy, are you going to clean that up? Oh yeah, I will. Um, I just got, I don't have time right now. Clean it up and come to my office for the meeting. <laughs> I got to Yeah, I mean, what it, what is it about Paul Rudd? Is it just his his dedication to the to the comedy, or what? It, how would you describe what he's able to do in those two different, very different scenes? I think it's a combination of that he deeply gets it, like he he really really gets the joke, more, you know, better and more fully than almost anyone, and he has the tools to deliver it, you know. And and I've always I've always admired and watching him work because he he will. Um, serve the material so hard and know where all the jokes are and know like the technical where to hit each rhythmic moment to for full impact but at the same time he is so in it he's like also method like he you feel like he's just living as a human being and so that's that's a movie star to me that's he's, he's incredible do you feel like everyone in the cast really got the the joke and how to play it? Or were there some people who it was more difficult to kind of get them there on the in the world that you were creating? I would say for the most part, I mean, that was the great uh, good fortune we had is we, I mean, certainly it was our intention, but we, we gathered a group of people that all got it. And that was, you know, it, as 
as crazy as the movie was, especially even more so probably at the time as it, than it would be now, it was on the page, luckily. And so we it wasn't like we had to say, we're going to do this thing, trust us to figure out, you know, like it, it was all probably more than most comedies today. The movie that is on screen is very similar to the movie that was on the page. Because mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of that, just like, okay, now do whatever you want for this. No, we didn't have take. time yeah. for that. Yeah. We didn't, th- there was no, we, and we were rolling film, very expensive. You know, it was, there was not, there was never the time for what so many modern movies will do now is they'll be like, okay, we all saw the script. Who cares? Let's just roll and just, just everyone riff for an hour and see what happens, you know? And, and that's, that's many great movies have come out that way. It's never been really my preference to work that way. Yeah. Um, even now that you've had the opportunity to have bigger budgets and, you know, do maybe have the ability to do that. Have you kind of avoided that? that I kind mean, of I've experimented improv? it with it. I mean, you know, Judd Apatow's style is very much like that. And we worked together on Wanderlust. And so I, I experimented going down that road and I found it interesting and a lot of good stuff came out of it. But yeah, I would say my default is I like to put a lot of that improvisational energy onto the page, you know, and like, and work with actors beforehand and in reads and, and then also leave room on set for sure, but not, but to be working from a script that's tight and is the main task, you know, but there were little things. I mean, there's many, one of my favorite improvs in Wet Hot is when uh, Michael Black says, um, I'm, I've already moved my meeting twice. (laughs) That was all him saying that. So the other, another scene that has obviously gotten a lot of attention over the years, um, and especially as Bradley Cooper became more famous, is the you know sex scene between Michael Ian Black and Bradley Cooper. Where did that come from? And I could imagine that being a scene that would have some pushback from people, you know, worried that. <laughs> Luckily, we had something... no people. <laughs> <laughs> it would have gotten pushback from the studio or the producers if we had either. But yeah, no, it was just it was our idea that the only couple that actually shows true affection for each other or that has any sort of serious relationship is the is this two men um and that uh you know the only other all the other pairings in the movie just like stick their tongues out at each other (laughs) and um so and then we just wanted to make this scene as as real and although slightly graphic as as we could and then the one thing i always remember is we had this great sound mixer at the, doing the post-production and we had um, that guitar score that um, Craig Wedren and Teddy Shapiro did. And I was like, let's run this once. Let's see how this looks with no score, this scene, and just just the sounds of what's happening in the room. And the sound mixer turned around and he said, guys, <laughs> you, leave, <laughs> it, you leave, it, leave it naked like that, you're going to get NC-17 and this will never come out. <laughs> and I was sort of embarrassed watching. It was hard for me to, I, I didn't to actually, <laughs> I didn't really watch it while we were sh- shooting it. I was, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was hard for me to like. I kind of let them do, uh, do their thing. I was, I was bashful. No, I gave them, I gave them as, as, as a, I guess somebody told me how you do a sex scene that, you know, you have, you have to be very specific and technical so that they don't, you're not letting them just flounder around. Yeah. Do whatever you want up there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was all, you know, it, it was so all a big first for me. I, I had never done, I had done all the directing I had done was with me holding my own camera usually, you know, or with the crew being my, my friends. Well, were other, were there other sort of bigger sequences that caused uh, either problems or that were particularly difficult? Well, one, the, um, there, mo- most of the problems involved rain. It, it rained almost every day and we, we did this. Which you would never know watching the movie. 
No, yeah, right. <laughs> we did the capture the flag scene, um, and we did that bit where there's a Kenyan runner. And while we were setting that up, you could see, you know, right over there, the darkest giant like storm front coming in. Like you can see, it's going to be here in seconds, and the wind's blowing, and everyone's like, "Guys, we have to stop!" But we're gonna—it's going to be an electrical storm. We and we have to stop shooting. And I was like, we need the shot, we need the shot. <laughs> and so the, we, you know, we didn't have any fancy equipment and we didn't, didn't have a steady cam or a cranes or anything. And so we had a, um, uh, one of, what do you call it? A gator, you know? And so we put the camera in and we had all those people running and the thing we're like, let's just get the shot. And you can actually see in the movie as we're, as that Kenyan runner is running, you can see the, the cloud, the shadow of the storm coming in right behind him. And sure enough, like, it was like cut and, and, you know, there was, there was so many problems with the rain. The opening sequence with the campfire was shot in the pouring rain. And, um, we had the director of the camp saved us by somehow getting a fire started in the middle of the woods, uh, in the rain. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's been so many stories about sort of the debaucherous party nature of the, um, of the shoot and that you were all staying on this camp and it was kind of just, you know, everyone was young and having fun. I always was kind of curious as the director, whether you were able to really participate and enjoy that, or were you kind of like had to be the the father figure of the, of the whole thing and, and kind of keep everyone on track? I would say it, uh, a slight combo, but leaning more towards participating. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll tell you, Christopher Maloney, who was a bit older than us, was kind of like had moments where he's like, guys, I need to sleep. Like, you know, because <laughs> basically all the main cast and crew, like six or eight of us or something, were living in the infirmary of the camp, which had slightly nicer rooms. And a lot of other people lived in all the bunks. That infirmary was just like really party central, like all night long. I mean, and I remember the scene that with Janine Garofalo talking to Amy Poehler and Bradley Cooper about the fact that uh, they put the kid in the talent show. Janine didn't go to sleep. Like they, they just, that was like first scene up in the day. So we're shooting that at like 7 a.m. And she just like got dressed from not going to sleep. <laughs> And uh, that was not uncommon. Beth, I may regret saying this, but how dare you usurp my authority as producer, <clears throat> director slash choreographer of this talent show? I mean, you were wrong to do that. I need you to know I have been busting my balls, woman. I am telling you, the musical numbers are a mess. My kids are a bunch of amateurs. And the last thing I need today is some diabetic freak prancing around on stage making my life a living hell all right i'll put him last good oh she always wins meanwhile cut to many years later we were doing the movie wanderlust also on location with a big group of friends and new friends and stuff and it had a very similar vibe with a lot of dance parties and hanging out but that was the time when I was not involved in any of that, because that that movie was very challenging to make, and I, we spent every second working on figuring out what we're doing and writing and trying to sleep, and then also uh, I had a little uh, like four year old at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, you do wonder whether, like, as the director, if you're partying with the cast, if they uh, if they will then take uh, take you seriously when you're when you need to like yeah. Well, I mean, we were so down and do stuff. 
to me, it was like we were so young and it was like, I mean, relatively speaking, we were like 30. But the for me, the experience of being at summer camp, but not being under anyone's rules was insane. Although the people who ran the camp were furious at us because everyone was acting that way. And, and, <laughs> what, and were they, were, what were they doing that was getting the people at the camp uh, Well, upset? one of the things that happened was <laughs> it seemed like such a party and no one really knew what you're supposed to do. And so for the first couple of days, I think people were just like had coolers of beer on the set all day. And, yeah. like, <laughs> and finally, our producer Howard was like, guys, we can't do that. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you can't just, be drunk all day, every day. This isn't the 70s. You know? <laughs> where I think, you know, they were just openly doing cocaine all day on sets or whatever. Yeah. And then the beer would just come out at, after the yeah. shooting was done for the day. In researching the movie we did about Doug Kenny, The Feudal and Stupid Gesture, hearing the stories about the insane amount of drug use on all film sets at the time was just like wild. And, you know, the different departments would just open their trucks, which were basically stores of drugs for everybody to use. It was just wild. Made, made Wet Hot feel tame by comparison. Way tame, way tame. Coming up, David opens up about just how bad things got for him and his co-writer Michael Showalter after Wet Hot American Summer bombed at the box office. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. You are definitely going to want to check out the interview we did with Wet Hot American Summer's Joe Lutrulio and another really fun talk with the State and Reno 911 alums, Thomas Lennon, Robert Ben Garant, and Kerry Kenny. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to David Wayne. So talking about the the reception of the movie, which I know was, you know, a, a disappointment at the time, I'm sure, and has evolved over the years in the way, you know, it's been perceived. What were sort of what were your expectations of releasing the movie versus what actually happened? Well, in making it, it, it was, we knew that it was one of those movies that I remember reading at the time that 1600 completed feature films are submitted to Sundance. And that was then I figured it, the goal for me was to get it finished and then somehow have it 
reach some audience. And truly, my real dream was that it would get a theatrical release and a review in the New York Times. That was kind of the the bar and the dream for me. And so when we took it to Sundance and there were no offers and no one wanted to buy it, that was deeply disappointing. And But then we did get this sort of last ditch pity offer from USA Films months later. Um, and it came out in two theaters and, and that's what happened. And it was like, you know, came and went and did it get a New York times review? It got a New York times review, which was one of those short reviews where you couldn't even tell if they liked it or not. <laughs> yeah. It was just sort like of three like, paragraphs and you're like, wait, yeah. And what? it just had some words in it. And you're like, I think maybe they liked it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then of course it got many, many savage reviews where people were just like, I can't come up with the words to how bad this is or how unfunny it is. And I wanted to slam, I wanted to uh, put nails in my forehead, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and then it got some reviews that were like, this is incredible or before it's time and blah, blah, blah. And it was, you know, it was clearly, I mean, we knew, I knew I loved it always, you know, and I, 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 I was never, I never felt like the movie didn't work. I was super psyched about it, but, um, and so I knew that it would reach its some level of its own audience, no matter what. But I, you know, it it definitely didn't make any money in uh, in the box office, and it, it did end up opening like they did a very very slow and sporadic theatrical release where once it opened in one theater in New York and one theater in L.A., then it then it like opened for two weeks in Athens, Georgia, and then it opened in Austin for a second, and then you know whatever. But and then it was done, and then and then it was like then the DVD came out, and then. Even then it was like, okay, the DVD's out. And then then people start talking about it. And then people start passing the DVD back and forth. And people start like, and only it was probably 2003, two years after the movie came out. Suddenly I'm looking around like, there's like something going on here, you know? What was it that, that told you that? Or how did you kind of know that something was going on? I guess just little things, you know, the, the, the I guess the internet was starting up and there was little people start mentioning it, talking about it. People start stopping at me on the street you start getting that vibe of like, there's a fan thing that's not just like, oh, I saw that movie. It was good. It was like, I'm like really into this movie. Like I want to, I'm watching it over and over again. And then we started doing these midnight screenings um, in New York around then, around Halloween, I think, whatever. And then packed screenings of a two-year-old indie bomb. <laughs> people are dressed up and people are screaming and yelling. And I'm like, okay, this is, Wow. And then I was definitely a big, um, I was stoking those fires as much as I, I loved the movie too. And I wanted to keep it going. So we, and we, it just, I think it just sort of slowly, but surely just ever since then kept growing and growing and growing to the point where, you know, by the time we pitched the prequel to Netflix in 2014 or whatever, it was, or especially when it came out, the the reviews of that were so funny. They're like, you know, the uni unanimously loved <laughs> beloved, movie, yeah. beloved from of all time, classic, wet hot American summer. <laughs> I'm like, that's not what <laughs> you guys thought when it came out. Yeah, I do wonder if the if the cast getting more famous through other projects helped the movie of have course. a longer life. I mean, when Amy Poehler's on SNL and, um, you know, and all these, all these well, other Bradley people. Bradley Cooper, getting, Elizabeth yeah. Banks. I mean, these are, Elizabeth Banks and Bradley Cooper is their first ever job. Um, so yeah. Like superstars now. Yeah. Of course. I mean, that, that's massive. You know, I think people who love those actors go look backwards and find this stuff. And, and I also just think it benefited big from it not having been a hit. So there was a lot of proprietary feeling that fans had. Yeah, underdog. Underdog and just like, I'm introducing this thing to you that only I know about, you know, and I think that that was a big 
thing. People are like, you've got to check this out. And the thing that I've heard so often over the years is that this movie, people say, hey, your movie is my litmus test for who's on my vibe <laughs> as a friend yeah. or who I can date, you know, and if like my new girlfriend likes Wet Hot, I know she's good, you know, and I think that that's that's a great compliment. Seems like with the reviewers, do you feel like they just they just didn't get what you were trying to do, or do you think that it was just such a new sensibility for people? I think there's a few things. One is that yeah, the the cat there they couldn't categorize it because it definitely wasn't funny in the way that you would expect a summer camp movie to be funny or any, or any like big comedy and very deliberately so. But they were like, "There's no jokes. Like what what this is <laughs> what is going on?" You know. And so just because it didn't fit into the, into the mold, I think some reviewers just didn't, could not log on, log on, you know? And then I think for other people, it's just not their thing, which is fine. It's always been that, you know, like there's plenty of people who see it for the first time now too, who are just like, this is, I don't get the hype. I, I've, this is not funny. And that's great. You know, it's, it's, it's not designed to make everyone on earth laugh and that's fine. But I think what's great about it, something like this is when you're, for the people that it hits, it hits really hard. And I'd, there was that musical title of show that had that great song. I was like, I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than nine million people's ninth favorite thing. I love that show. Um, what was the effect on your career, both in the in the immediate aftermath when it didn't do well, and then sort of as it started to pick up steam? Did you really? Did you have a? Um, must have been kind of a roller coaster for you. In that, yeah, it was in bad. That sense. It was the short answer is it was bad. Um, <laughs> but well, which is to say after the movie came out, Michael Schalter and I together tried to mount a number of other projects. And we, came, we were living in New York, but traveling to LA regularly to like pitch and develop movies, TV shows. And we did so many things. I remember once in a moment of depression, sort of listing them all out and counting 32 projects that just were attempted and fizzled. One of which was They Came Together, which we developed at Universal in 2003. It fell apart and then uh, took me 10 years of finagling to finally make that movie later. But no, it was a rough time. Basically, between Wet Hot, which we shot in 2000, and finally, the Stella series getting made in 2005. So that was a very rough five years for me, financially, career-wise, just like trying to figure out what to do. And a lot of times the, the result on my career of having made Wet Hot during that time was there were some people in the industry that were big fans of it, but they, they did not felt, feel like it could translate into anything helpful for them. And so we would get a meeting with some studio exec who's like, oh my God, this movie is so funny. Now, can you do something, nothing like this? You yeah. Know? Well, they saw that it didn't, it didn't make money and that's all they really cared right. about probably. And also the liability, like we would get hired or like in a talk to like write a script for something or do And they were like, but wait a minute, are you going to make it like wet hot? I hope not. You know, and we're like, <laughs> well, okay, we don't have to, but you know, they, they, it was hard to even convince people we could. And then um, we actually had, a company that was going to make They Came Together at one point around then. And we were like locked and loaded, ready to shoot that in Toronto and have this budget and do it. And then at the last minute, the producer saw Wet Hot American Summer and was like, oh my God, these guys have no idea what comedy is. Mm. And, he, and the whole thing got <laughs> shut down. Oh my God. Um, so it, yeah, it, it took, it took a long time, but then through a, you know, a totally different 
set of events, the Stella show through a nightclub show and then through videos on the internet and then became a series on Comedy Central and then um, cobbled together things after that that kept me busy for a while and that we I got to do that movie, The Ten. And then finally, through true stroke of luck, a uh, director dropped out of a bigger movie that Paul Rudd was doing and I got to do Role Models. And that was sort of, I mean, that was your your biggest hit probably to date. Um, and at that point is this movie that you, you kind of came in as a higher director as opposed to something you wrote. Was that strange to to come in as a, you know, to after really only doing things that you had had been so close to and written, what was it like to kind of come in and direct something that you weren't as close to? It was definitely totally new and weird in a million ways. But the, the, the luck of it was that the script and the whole production was enough in chaos. And the producers were looking to me and Paul Rudd, and then I brought in Ken Marino to make it into something. And we decided, fuck it, let's let's make this our version of this. And so we really did tear it down to the bones and build the role models that we wanted to see. And so by the time we got to shooting that movie, it was still not, this wasn't our story that we wrote, but it was definitely something that I felt a lot of ownership over and a lot of feeling like it was our thing. You know, it wasn't like I was just serving somebody else's vision at all at the, at the time. So it was very lucky that way. So you mentioned, obviously, you revived Wet Hot, you know, just about, you know, five or six years ago um, for Netflix. What was that decision like? And was was it a hard decision at all to say, do we want to go back into this thing? And do we want to kind of mess with this perfect cult classic? Without question, I, ex I asked myself that very question. It was very hard for me. Uh, I think Joe Walter had to convince me a little bit at different points because I really... I was like, maybe just let's make an internet short for it. You know, like I, I was like, do you really want to fuck with this? And and also just, you know, all the pitfalls. We all know what pitfalls are to go revisit something all those years later. And this was before every single thing was rebooted and revisited. And we had we had actually written a different, we had written a prequel movie that was called Winter that was about a New Year's party. And with those same characters, but with many of the same, most of the same characters. Yeah. And it was a feature film. And then but we never, it was like a very long rambling, very first draft of a script, I think. And then, but we also, we had always joked about doing a prequel because of how absurd it would be with the age of the actors. <laughs> yeah. And as we were just thinking more about this movie idea and see, and trying to figure out, there were so many characters and so many storylines and so many things we wanted to fit in. We're like, this could, this really is longer than a movie. And just around that time, we were looking around and it was just when Netflix was becoming a thing where people would, where it was the thing. And and so we said, let's pitch this to Netflix. And, and it was at the time, Netflix was meant you go and you talk to these two people and they would say yes or no. It was like, it was, it was not nearly the. Yeah. And the behemoth. reputation was that they would say yes to, to a lot. <laughs> they say yes to a lot. And they also just, it was a very, there was no layers. It was, it was not, you know, today it's, it's like a massive behemoth machine. You know, it's literally nothing like it was five years ago. It's, it's crazy how different. And the younger, like junior execs that were helping us from Netflix then are now the presidents of the company and, you know, everything moves so fast. But anyway, basically my entire all my energies through that whole process of doing the the prequel were 
trying to be hyperly aware of those pitfalls and wanting to make the kind of prequel that makes sense to me as a fan of the original and to to not sully it. And I think certainly for some fan, you know, I I there's this one guy who has been like offering his um uncensored opinion about my work <laughs> oh yeah in you know in person for 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 30 years and he was like why did you do that this sucked because this but but for the most part i think we pulled it off and i was very happy that a lot of the response to it was like this was a prequel that made sense and that worked and i felt i felt that way too and you put yourself in it um which is something you didn't do in the original movie um as the israeli counselor which is a, a wonderful performance um sort of a, a more rare acting performance from you uh why did you want to be in it the truth is i did want to be in the first one and i was in it uh, but I, there was no like really great part for me to play in the first one and and i i've i've always acknowledged i'm not like i'm not as good an actor as mike showalter or you know but i wanted to just be in it and so we shot this scene with me and carrie kenny um that uh, two couple in a tent and uh whatever it's in the deleted scenes but um so i didn't i got cut out of i cut myself out of the original movie <laughs> and then in the 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 prequel I, again, was just like, I just want to do something. I want to have some scene in it or something. And then, but we had, we were developing this Israeli character, which was not intended for me to play. We were going to get like, whatever, Diego Luna, somebody like that. And in fact, I was not really the main, We uh, by the time, you know, we were doing eight episodes, we had our great writer's room and I was not the main writing force behind that character. But then we started doing table reads around the writer's room. And I, having such a deep, very emblazoned memory of how annoyed I was by the Israeli counselors at my real summer <laughs> camp, I was like, I'll read this. And then from the moment of just me reading the part in the writer's room, everyone's like, it's weird, but I think maybe you should play that. You know. So, <laughs> and of course, I was like, sure. <laughs> I'll do it. Um, yeah, no, that's great. Looking ahead, I, I wanted to ask about this project that got announced, uh, I don't know, not too long ago, just because it sounds so unique and interesting, uh, Today's Special. What can you share about what, what that's going to be? Well, Today's Special, the, the idea uh, initially was um, an experiment to put up a fully single camera cinematic narrative sitcom, but daily. <laughs> <laughs> and so to create a machine inspired by the process done by soap soap operas to somehow make a really funny half hour ongoing comedy show every day <laughs> it's, a, it's an um, ambitious idea it's it's very ambitious and it just it takes from my lifetime of different ways of you know from children's hospital and doing stella shorts or whatever and and, and figuring out and and my partner ad miles who was the head writer on tonight show sort of marrying those two worlds and finding a way to mount this experiment and we we actually shot uh four test shows of this to see how it go and basically long story short pandemic and delays and who knows and so it the, the project is of question mark right now but it's still there's there is a potential life for it uh perhaps soon and the and the benefit of having it shooting it and having it come out daily is that you actually sort of work in current events to the, right. That's, to the uh, story. Yeah. I, I forgot to even mention that. Yeah. The idea was that we, we actually shoot the day it airs as well and do a very quick edit. And so we would, um, exactly. We would make reference to things happening in the world that very day. I think that it's, who knows, it, it may, it may come out in a, at a place and it may not be exactly that way or we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Well, it's exciting. I'm, I was, I was very curious to see what it, what it becomes. 
So as we as we get to the end here, I want to do our our little speed round, which I call the first laugh. Um, so we'll go through a few of these. I like a speed round. What's the first piece of comedy that you remember really making you laugh uh, when you were growing up as a kid? Probably Mel Brooks uh, movie or um, or or seeing like uh, the Steve Martin specials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was do you feel like Mel Brooks uh, had a big influence on your on your style? Kind of. Woody Allen was really probably the bigger one and Steve Martin. Um, but definitely I liked as a very young guy, I liked Mel Brooks. I, I loved staying up and getting to see Saturday Night the, Live. The joke density of Mel Brooks has some resonance to, to your work, I think. Yeah, obviously there's a parallel. There's no question. And airplane and that's that sort of thing. And I loved SCTV and, you know, I those were my forming comedies, I guess. Do you remember the first time that you realized you were funny? I was the youngest of four kids by far in my family. I have three much older sisters. And so I think I was just the natural class clown of the family. And then by extension, my friends. And so I I feel like it's just kind of always been my place. I never felt like it was, I don't remember a time before that. <laughs> Do you have a story about meeting any member of the state for the first time that really, uh, that really was impactful when that first time you met them? Well, the first one I met was Ken Marino, who was a high school friend of the roommate that my that Craig Wedren, our composer, and I were assigned freshman year of college. And he came down to our room with a big milk crate filled with liquor he had snuck into the <laughs> dorm. And it was like, I got a drink um, or something like that. <laughs> but I remember I was in this other comedy troupe at NYU the, that was started by Mo Willems called Sterile Yak. And then we went to go see this B-team group. It's a whole story. But we, when we went to go see them, that's the first time I saw a lot of the members of the state for the first time. I remember seeing them all and just being like, Jesus, these people are so funny. Oh, my God, I want to quit. <laughs> Do you remember the first sketch that you did with the state that you felt like really worked or, or connected with an audience in a, in a strong way? Wow. Great question. I remember we the first sketches I really did with the state are ones that I wrote with Mike Showalter when we were both, uh, I, we were going to Brown University. I was on a visiting semester at Brown and we would drive back on weekends to do shows with the state at NYU. I don't think anything we wrote then was that funny. <laughs> the first sketch that I wrote that got onto the TV show was the running talk show where it's, it's a talk show where everyone in it is jogging, <laughs> which was kind of fun. And then I guess the, the answer to your question is the sketch that, that most sort of like worked early, the earliest, earliest times in the state for me was called Martin's Greatest Day, where I was playing this guy Martin in an elevator with other people. I can't even remember, but I think everything sort of went wrong and it was lonely and the people were treating me poorly. But then it turned out that it was just a surprise and they were giving me balloons and they loved me or something <laughs> like that. And I'm like, this is the greatest day of my entire life was what I said at the end. That's great. And then finally, uh, what's the what's the last piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard? Um, and just as a as a shout out to something you've seen or someone you a comedian you saw or a TV show oh or just God. something that that made you laugh recently. Uh, I see things all the time. What was I, did I just see? Well, I, I mean, I just, the last thing I saw was Dirty Dancing. Oh. Um, at the uh, <laughs> they had an outdoor screening at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery for July Fourth, and I was surprised how well that held up. Current comedy, I do see things. Let's see, I'm watching Loki with my son. It's funny. <laughs> I really can't think of anything. 
to be well, completely dirty dancing. Honest. Yeah, that's that's a good uh, recent, you know, comment. <laughs> My reference, I, I, I as a fifty-one-year-old man, I'm sometimes like I listen to all the new stuff, like Fiona Apple. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have uh, I've loved your comedy for for so long, and it's made me laugh uh, so much. So I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on the show and uh, talk about this movie that I can't believe is twenty years old. Thank you for having me. I do remember one thing. I I certainly like everyone loved the Bo Burnham special. Oh, that was yes. pretty inspiring and yeah, awesome. Seriously, yeah. You know what makes me laugh a lot? Honestly, I see people do stuff on TikTok that really is just like people are really innovating on that platform in ways that I never would have guessed they would. Awesome. Well, thanks, David. This was great. Thank you for doing it. Have a great day. All right. I want to thank David Wayne so much for coming on today's show and for making me laugh so much over the years with this movie and everything else he has directed. You can stream the original Wet Hot American Summer movie on Peacock and the two reunion seasons on Netflix. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.